Hello. Um, two weeks ago, I kissed the blimey stones, so this is going to be eloquent, I guess. So September 1870. This is a reminiscence of James Gourley. They had two of the Springfield carbines with them of the first issue to the Army. Adam Miller and I were in camp. Henderson and Hibbard were out looking over the country where the Indians drove off the horses. I was 30 yards out from the camp and Indians all around me. I got to camp as the outfit passed and called to Miller not to unload his rifle except to kill for sure and fired as a leader turned towards the camp. I do not know that I hit him, but he flattened down his horse's neck. I had been in a number of Indian fights before with men who knew that an Indian will not attack where they are sure of losing man for man. Just when we got through with our plans of defense, I received one certain good hunch and went to the rim of a narrow, deep coulee formed by the snow waters flooding over the rock dike, 25 or 30 feet deep, and called as though I had seen our two partners coming in. Four Indians got up from behind a low ridge, not over 40 feet from where I stood, each with a long gun. They evidently thought they would force us out of camp, we would make for the coulee, and the four Indians behind the ridge would shoot us down like cattle. It seemed like a long time waiting, Lord how long, before they came. After we got together, we had, were no longer afraid. All we had to do was protect ourselves from ambush. We spent the next day destroying everything that might be of value to an Indian and poisoning any article that would, they would like to use. About the worst thing that could happen was the fact that we had to face going back 200 miles to the settlements. On arriving at Bozeman, we at once got ready to return, and finding out the value of Springfield rifles, I acquired seven and about 1,000 pounds of ammunition. The means of doing so would have been criminal under any other circumstances. In a few days, a party of eight started back to Cook by way of Boulder. Going upstream, we found the trail of the Indians where they had followed us down. On this trip, we sunk a shaft 30 feet deep in a soft cement. Here we had another snowstorm where we, when we had to shovel snow for our horses for four or five days about the middle of September. So a little bit about our history and kind of what I'll be talking about today. Um, in 1870 was our initial discovery, so that's where that story comes from. Um, and in about the middle of the 1870s and on, we started getting reports of large amounts of miners heading from the Bozeman area because that's where you would get your supplies and it's kind of your last outpost post before you would head through the what would become the park um, and out to the Clarks Fork vicinity. So the New Northwest, August 30th, 1873 reported, the vicinity of Bozeman has been thronged during the past week with miners and prospectors who are going to the Clarks Fork mines. The company now starting will not number less than 100 men. So just to put this into perspective, in 1872, Yellowstone is established, so it's kind of in, in that time frame, and in 1880, the town is named Cook City. So it's publicity like that um, one there that came out of Bozeman that really kind of caught the eye of the Cook family and um, also really interested the Cook family in the Yellowstone area. So in this photograph here, we have Cook Sr. here, um, Junior here, and this is the third and the fourth. So a little bit about the Cook family. Um, during the 1860s, during the Civil War, Jay Cook and his company backed bonds and um, sold them to the general public, which was kind of a new idea at this point. Um, usually they would go to large financial backers, banks, 
that sort of thing to sell the bonds. And he was really interested in rallying the general public. Um, so even when they were being defeated during the Civil War, um, he got people excited about, you know, being patriotic and still backing a losing side, which is something that we definitely continue to do today. Um, we're very patriotic, so it's kind of cool it started there. Um, so during, he did make quite a bit of money actually off the Civil War, and also caught the ear of a lot of politicians, Lincoln, Grant, that sort of thing, through his experience during the Civil War. Um, so he was looking for an investment, and um, in the 1860s and 70s, he became involved with the Northern Pacific Railroad. Um, so his, he was a very religious man, he's very philanthropic, um, and he wanted to build Christian communities across the United States um, and, use, and build them along the railroad. So he was looking for um, communities that would have a church, um, a school, everything that you needed to be a sustainable community. And he was also interested in westward expansion. So he's looking for investments, um, and especially industrial investments. And he was one of the first ones to really recognize the importance of tourism. So as he heard reports coming out of the Yellowstone area, um, different you know, things have been published about how exciting it was. He got excited about it. He's looking for an investment, and he's really interested in um, figuring out a way to get a railroad to Yellowstone National Park, um, or what would be Yellowstone National Park. Um, and his involvement with the railroad definitely ties into that. So he backs um, Washburn-Langford expeditions. Um, Langford was a Northern Pacific employee, so he hired Langford to come along, um, see what he could see about the Yellowstone area, bring that back, and present talks um, that would promote an idea of a railroad going to the Yellowstone area. He was also financially responsible for getting Moran, um, Thomas Moran, the painter, onto these expeditions. So he, actually the, the largest painting, and I can't remember the name of it, but it's the one of the Yellowstone Falls, um, which is one of his most famous ones. Cook was responsible for getting that actually put in um, where they were having legislation at the time that there was all this interest in getting the park established. So he made sure that painting was there so that people saw it um, as they were going to take these boats. So he's very influential in making the park um, become established. But then the panic of 1873 happens and it ruins Cook for the time being. It severs his relationship with the Northern Pacific Railroad and the um, company that he had started, Jay Cook and Company, kind of ousted him from the company prior to this panic because they knew it was coming. He had put too much money um, into the Northern Pacific and wasn't focusing on his banking house anymore. So um, that ruins Cook for that time period, um, but he makes it back in Utah mining, or so they say. Um, he could have had money stashed away. We're not quite sure about that, but supposedly it was Utah mining. And there is actually a really good book about it called J. Cook's Gamble, um, and it leads up to that 1873 um, panic, and then talks a little bit about after. It has a lot of great stuff about his involvement with Yellowstone. So, in 1880, our history collides, and Jake Cook Jr. visits the Clark's Fork Mines. So the New Northwest, July 16, 1880, reports, a party of Philadelphia capitalists, including Jake Cook Jr., arrived in town, which was Bozeman, Saturday. They come here for the purpose of visiting the Clark's Fork Mines. So, again, 
Um, to put that into perspective of the Cook City history, in 1870 is the initial discovery, and in 1880, J. Cook Jr. visits. And I'm still doing a lot of research, newspaper articles, and understanding how all this came to be, because um, as we'll talk about, there's a lot of legends of how this comes to be. And recently, I've discovered that actually it was prior to J. Cook's visit that we were named Cook City. Um, so the Bozeman Avant Courier, in June 24, 1880, just a month prior to when he visits, um, said on motion of John G. Stevens, the new town was unanimously named Cook City. So that's um, definitely, I've, and I've looked those newspaper articles over and over, and there's no doubting those dates. So um, we were actually technically named before he came, which shows we were proactive in getting him excited about the mines and not reactive. So it's, it's a very different thing. Um, so the result of the visit was positively printed in newspapers, albeit slightly lacking in detail. The Helena Weekly Herald, July 29, 1880, says, The J. Cook Party are reported to have consummated the purchase of the bonded Clark's Fork Mines, the purchasing price being $100,000. Young Mr. Cook and Associates returned east by way of the National Park and are probably now viewing the sites in that region of wonders. Um, however, a letter by Richmond, we're not quite sure who that is, um, gave more insight into the situation. And while maintaining a hopeful ring does present the issues that would plague progress, the hindrance of the Crow Reservation and the desperate need for economical transportation. So during this time period, the land around Cook City, or what was to become Cook City, was actually on the Crow Reservation. Um, so that was definitely a problem. All of the smelting, smelters that were there, the mining claims that were there, technically illegal at this point. So Richmond writes, I expected to inform you in this letter of scenes and pictures of a busy mining camp, but such cannot be, owing to the fact that our bonded mines were not sold. The only reason that the sale was not consummated was in the title. J. Cook and company were highly pleased with the property and seemed to regret as much as we are still being on the domain of the noble red man. They remained three or four days and were loath to leave, but had to return east within a stated period. They examined several mines outside of those bonded and spoke in splattering terms of the prospects. They also examined the Clark's Fork Divide as to the possibility of a branch line of the Northern Pacific, which was reported feasible. I learned it was their intention to have this route surveyed at as early a date as possible, likely this fall, and about the same time survey up the Yellowstone from some point near Bozeman. As to their buying the mines, it will not positively be known until after the Crow Treaty is ratified, but think it likely that their intentions are to take hold and push matters here as soon as title can be given. There will be four or five thousand dollars expended this fall on the Houston, Greeley, and Great Republic mines in exploring, and the result of the explorations will virtually decide the matter. Um, so when we're looking at kind of talking about Jay Cook and Jr. and this group of people coming, um, it's my guess, and I really need to do a little bit more research on this, but it's my guess that somebody else in that party was connected with the Northern Pacific. I'm not sure what Jay Cook Jr.'s involvement would have been at that time, considering his father had kind of messed that one up a little bit. So um, I had to kind of research that a little bit more. But in 1882, the land was removed from the reservation, and the Helena Weekly Herald um, reported, by the provisions of the Crow Treaty, the Indians ceded to the United States a large tract of valuable, land, land, mineral, valuable mineral and agricultural lands lying south of the Yellowstone and near the line of the Northern Pacific, and including the rich and well-known Clark's Fork mines. And as early as January of 
1882, newspapers were reporting the town's new name as J. Cook City. Um, so it was kind of getting out. They knew that the Crow um, Treaty was going to be ratified, and so that was kind of something newspapers were talking about. So it's not until 1883 when Cook City, the town site, is actually established um, as we had a petition for the land site, um, those sorts of things. So there's actually three years in between when we first name ourselves Cook City and when it can be on an official capacity. So with all the news coming out of the camp, not one mentions Jay Cook and his investments after this point. A telling note on the fickle interest these mines were to receive in the years to come. In the 1920s and 1930s, in-depth retrospective articles on the history of Cook City would confuse the order of events by which Jay Cook faded from the scene. They would surmise that the Panic of 1873 ruined Cook's investments, but the reality seems to be that in the time waiting for the Crow land to be ceded, the financer must have lost interest in the prospects. So, shoe fly. Um, shoe fly was one of the first mines in the region. It was owned by Horn Miller. Um, he's this guy here. He's our founding father of our town. Um, and Pike Moore. So, the shoe fly mine is right up here, and the town site of Cook City is right down here. So it was a highly productive mine that produced ore for the Republic smelter um, at an early date, and um, particularly when the Republic smelter was technically on illegal land before the Crow Reservation was ratified. Um, so in 1903, the Butte Intermountain um, wrote, the first mine he located, so Pikemore located, in Cook City was a shoe fly. He was offered 25000 for the property, but refused it, wanting 30000 so it's really the success of mines like the shoe fly that interests Jay Cook um, and company and many other um, mining investments after that. But it's my guess um, that Miller and Moore would have referenced their mine as a destination when they're heading up to town. So they would have said, we're headed up to the shoe fly. Um, but they were talking about their mine, not the town site itself. So here's kind of all the different names we've been called. So from 1870 to about 1880 were the Clark's Fork Mines. Um, and that's kind of a general term. It includes a lot of land. Um, but generally speaking, they were talking about the area around Cook City. Um, so I have researched over 3,000 newspaper articles so far. There's a lot more out there. Um, from 1870 to 1960, and only nine of these mentioned shoe fly in relation um, or mention shoe fly at all. Um, and all of them are in relation to the mine, not a town site. So um, 1880 on, we're known as Cook City or J. Cook City. Um, and then a lot of points in here, it's the New World Mining District, but that's definitely talking more about the mining regions and not necessarily a town itself. Um, and then it looks to me, and I'm still doing research on this, but about 1950s, 1960s is where we start to see um, the shoe fly thing pop up. So many publications, including this one as recent as 2014, use a story about the camp being temporarily called shoe fly to discuss the history of the area. So the Missoulian has recently uh, written. The miners established a small camp called Shoefly in recognition of the district's most productive mine. By 1880, however, they changed the name to Cook City in honor of Jay Cook Jr., a major investor in the mines. So, first of all, we were not called Shoefly, not the camp itself. That was just a mine. Um, and secondly, Jay Cook Jr. never fully invested in the mines. It was only speculation. Nothing actually ever happened. Um, so, a little blip like this really doesn't say a whole lot about our history. A lot of it's unfounded. 
Um, there were a couple motions in um, following Jay Cook's involvement when he was no longer going to come, where it was uh, considered to change our name to Edelweiss instead after the um, Alpine flower. But we stuck with Jay Cook because everybody already knew us by that. <laughs> I don't know if that many people did, but you know. So, um, what's in a name and why does it matter? So the problem is it misses the point. Cook City has a rich history that ties into larger national issues. The reclaiming of Crow Reservation land, the issues that the railroad posed to the newly established national park, the national attention the land's proximity to the park has created in general over the years, the impact Jay Cook had in America, and how the town of Cook City hung on to the hope that Jay Cook Jr. could bring them economic security. I realize we're looking at a two-sentence blip in some publications, but any one of these points any one of these points would be a more accurate picture of the history than an unnecessary and probably untrue sentence wasted on um, the shoe fly myth. So if we don't claim our history, the legends and myths claim us. Thank you. Yeah. Uh -huh.